You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning as we begin. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the resurrection which the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's bow our heads and pray together before we begin. Our Father, as we read, we know that we are not reading the mere words of men, but we are reading Your revelation of Yourself to us. So we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it has a power which transcends us and our ability to communicate it. We call out to You this morning that You would help us to hear, to obey, to be convicted by Your Word, that You would send Your Spirit to teach us to exhort us, to encourage us. And we pray, Father, that as a result of our time here this morning in Your Word, that You would strip away from us every fleshly prop, every misplaced confidence, and every idol of our hearts, that we might be laid bare before You and before Your Word, and that our confidence may be in Jesus Christ and Him alone. We ask this in His name. Amen. Perhaps the most well-known conversion story in all of your Bible is the one of the Apostle Paul that we read in Acts chapter 26. It is well known for a number of reasons, because it is dramatic, because of its dramatic circumstances, and because of its dramatic results. And in fact, that conversion account is given to us three times in the New Testament, three times in the book of Acts. Now, whenever a Bible writer repeats something for us, we know that it's not because he's just looking for something to say. We know that it is because he is trying to emphasize something. It is for Luke, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was for Luke, something that was so significant, so crucial, so key to the growth of the early church that he goes through the bother of recording it for us three times. Once in Acts chapter 9, just from the third person perspective, here's how it went and here's here's what happened. And then Luke gives us Paul's own testimony again in Acts 22 when he gives his testimony to the Jews in the temple. And then we get it again in Acts 26 when Paul gives his testimony to Agrippa. 
Now, three times it's mentioned to us, and, and we've all read it, and it's included in every Sunday school curriculum that we've ever gone through or any of our kids have ever gone through. And so all of the historical details about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus are familiar to us. We're familiar with it because of its dramatic results. Here was a man who was the persecutor of all persecutors. This man was so zealous, so on fire, so committed to the glory of God that he was willing to persecute the church and to kill Christians. And he is on his way to the target city. And about noonday on the road, he falls to his face in the ground and the people who are with him hear a voice or hear a noise, but they don't understand what they're hearing. And he sees the light and he is blinded by it. Later on, Paul would say that he saw the resurrected Christ in all of his glory on the Damascus road. And there with his face down in the dirt, something happened in the mind and the heart of the Apostle Paul that forever changed him. And when he got up from the Damascus road, he went into the city of Damascus and there found Ananias, whom the Lord directed to go to the street called Straight and to baptize Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was baptized. And then immediately, it says, he went into the synagogue and he began to proclaim that faith which he first earlier sought to destroy. Now, what could account for such a dramatic transformation from persecutor to preacher, from opponent of Christianity to proponent of Christianity? What accounts for such a, a massive change of heart and a massive change of mind? Well, obviously the supernatural circumstances that attended it, the bright light and seeing the risen Christ and having Jesus say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Obviously that had something to do with it. But beyond that, there was something that went on in his heart and in his mind that is revealed to us in Philippians chapter 3. And we've been reading it in recent weeks and studying through that, this passage that we just read when I opened. This passage which describes the Apostle Paul before his conversion and after his conversion. Now listen, before Saul's conversion to Christ, he had everything going for him. Everything going for him. He sat at the top of his world. He had the envy of Jews, Pharisees, priests, Sadducees. Any Jew of Paul's day would have loved to have a pedigree like Paul's. Loved to have been able to give the list of accomplishments that he gives. All those accomplishments we looked at last week. Some that came just by virtue of the fact that he was born to whom he was born to and, and born at the time that he was born. Those accomplishments and achievements and adva advantages that were his by virtue of his Jewish heredity. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born of the nation of Israel, of that narrow covenant line. He was of a respectable tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, able to recount his whole lineage all the way back to Benjamin. He was um, a Hebrew of Hebrews, untainted by Greek culture, untainted by Hellenistic speech. He spoke the mother tongue. He was as Jewish as Jewish could be. All of that he had going for him. But then he recounts all of the advantages that he had as a result of his own hard work, discipline, and study. As to the law, Paul says, I was not a theological liberal. I was a Pharisee. It wasn't easy becoming a Pharisee. You had to work hard. You had to study hard. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament law. He had memorized large portions of the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew the law. He knew the prophets. He was familiar with all of that. He was the envy of his world. He was at the top of his class. He was the best of the best, the elite of the elite. He had all of the zeal that anybody could want, so zealous that he was willing to persecute the church of God. And then when it came to all of the outward minutiae of keeping the law and being righteous in people's eyes, Paul says, I was blameless. Now that's quite a pedigree. 
But then we read in Philippians chapter 3, all of those things that were gained to me, I counted them as loss. When did Paul make that transition in his mind? From seeing all of those things as gain to him, to then realizing all of these things are lost to me. That happened on the Damascus Road, I believe, with his face down in the dirt. When he suddenly realized he was who he was, and that he had what he had, and that everything he thought he had going for him suddenly vanished and became to him one large loss. So we're going to pick it up in Philippians chapter 3. Verse 7, we've looked at all of his advantages and all of his blessings and his benefits. In verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Whatever things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now the words gain and loss were commercial terms. They were business terms. They were accounting terms. They were words that you would use to describe things that went in your assets column and things that went in your liabilities column. So they're commercial language that would have been used by people to refer to those things that they gained through business transactions and those things that they lost due to damage or forfeit or lost from business transactions. My assets column and my liabilities column. There's two columns that Paul's talking about. Whatever those things were that were gained to me, what are those things? They are all of the things listed in verses 4 to 6. All of the earthly advantages, all of the fleshly advantages, all of the benefits and the blessings of being born as a Pharisee, being born of the nation of Israel, being born a Hebrew of Hebrews, everything that he had going for him in verses 4 to 6, Paul says all of those things were gained to me. They were advantages to me. And at one time, and notice the Apostle Paul says those things were gain. They were gain. And Paul is describing a point prior to his conversion. And he is saying there was a time when this is how I viewed all of those things. And the word assets, by the way, is in the plural in the Greek, or the word gain. It's literally gains, and it refers to assets. All of those gains, plural things. It's as if the Apostle Paul had a list of them. And he could name them. I had this, and I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and I have this. And listen, I have no reason to believe that all of those things that we looked at in verses 4 to 6 could not have easily become the heading of their own little list. I don't think Paul was being comprehensive when he lists them in verses 4 through 6. I think the Apostle Paul is simply rattling off some things that basically sort of cover almost every area in which he placed his confidence, but he probably had a whole bunch of things that he could have went on and on and on. All of the gains, all of the individual things, he saw them as, I got little, I got my stars on my chart, I got this check, I got this check, I got this check. And you could go down the list of individual accomplishments, individual blessings, individual advantages that he had. And Paul thought, I see all of these in my assets column. And when I stand before God, and my books are audited, God is going to find all of my books in the good. I've got all of these things in my assets column, and they outweigh my liabilities column. You ever run across somebody who has that very same mentality? You know, sure you do. I've had people, I've been witnessing to people, and had people brush off everything that I say in a witnessing encounter by simply saying, well, I'm just going to trust in the good man upstairs when I die, and he's going to weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds, and then he's going to determine where I go. <laughs> and they say it with such a flippancy that you honestly know that even thinking about such a proposition, they have no fear whatsoever that that's actually going to happen and that God is actually going to send them to hell because in their mind, all of their assets, all of their gains outweigh the occasional indiscretion in their liability. 
And they would have their own list. And you could ask them, give me your list. And, and they could give it to you because they honestly view themselves as a good person. They honestly are willing to proclaim their own goodness in the sight of God and their own righteousness in the sight of God and would be able to say to you, I have, I have never cheated on my spouse, never once. And I have been honest on my taxes, at least more honest than my neighbor on my taxes. And I've never told a lie. It's not a white lie, just an innocent lie. It's a victimless crime. It doesn't hurt anybody. And I've never killed anybody. And I've never been a homosexual. And I've never had an abortion. And I've never been divorced. And I've never been drunk. And they have all of their assets in their asset column. All of the things in which they think that they can take pride. All of the things that they think gives them confidence before God. And in their mind, they're going to stand before God and God is going to look at them and say, you've been pretty good. I mean, relatively speaking. You're no Mother Teresa, but you're no Hitler either. And when I consider your good deeds and your bad deeds and I weigh them out, well, I mean, you do, you do certainly lean over on the assets column. So come on into my kingdom. But that's not the way it's going to go on Judgment Day. Because that's not how God makes an accounting of our wrongs. I fear that there may even be somebody sitting here today or more than one person who trusts in those type of things for their salvation. There are, and I kind of divided them down into three categories of things that we tend to trust in for our own sanctification. First of all, our heredity. Our heredity. Were you born to Christian parents? Baptized as an infant by devout parents? Then you went through confirmation class? And you grew up under the spiritual influence of good churches all your life and you've been through Sunday school and you've been through youth group and you've been through uh, all of the rigmarole all the way up through and you've been baptized and you've memorized uh, 455 verses in uh, Awana clubs and you've gone over and above and beyond the call of duty and you've served in every ministry and your grandparents are Christians and your great-grandparents are Christians and your great-great-grandparents are Christians and you've never known anything but a Christian influence in your whole life. Is that you? And now I ask you this question, what does that gain for you? Do you view that as a gain? Do you view that as something that earns you righteousness in the sight of God, before God? That you have all of those blessings and you grew up untainted and unspotted by the outside world because your parents homeschooled you and kept you cloistered all your life and so you've been a moral person you have all of this godly influence? Is that gain to you? Do you think that, do you think that any or all of those things gain you divine favor in God's sight and that He looks down upon you and sees you as special because of your heredity? Friends, I tell you something. If that is gain to you, then you are still lost because you are trusting in the wrong thing. Or how about your morality? Trust in your morality? I meet people who are trusting in their morality. Well, I'm a good person. Never rebelled from my parents. I never rebelled from the church. I I, I hardly ever take the Lord's name in vain. I was faithful until I got married, and since I've been married, I've been just as faithful as the sunrise to my spouse. And uh, Dad taught me the value of a good hard day's work and a dollar earned, penny saved is a penny earned, and work for my dollar and work hard and put in a hard day's labor and get the reward for that and be a person of integrity and be on time and be faithful. I'm a very moral person. Listen, hell will be filled with men and women who have never cheated on their spouses. Hell will be filled with people who have been faithful to their spouses. Hell will be filled with people who have never pulled a trigger and killed anybody. Your morality can't save you. Is that what you're trusting in? Your morality? You think you're a good person? You're a moral person? 
You've been faithful your whole life. You've been spotless and you're blameless in your own eyes. You're a moral person. That's what you're trusting in. Listen, if you're trusting in your morality, you're still lost because you're trusting in the wrong thing. Not only heredity and morality, but how about orthodoxy? You run into people all the time who think that their soundness of doctrine saves them. Just like Paul, as to the law, Pharisee, I got it nailed. He would have been able to debate anybody, anytime, anywhere. He had a handle on Jewish orthodoxy and Jewish doctrine and sound doctrine that would make anybody envy. He knew the Bible well. He was very orthodox in his beliefs. Paul said, when it comes to the law, I was a Pharisee. And the things found in the law, when it comes to righteousness, I was blameless. He was a very orthodox individual. But his orthodoxy, his his soundness of doctrine, and his doctrinal uh, things that he thought earned him favor in God, Paul says, those are a loss to me. You may say to me, Jim, I'm a very doctrinally sound person. I can swear by the best of doctrinal statements. I can recite to you the catechism and the first... 15 creeds that the church ever issued, and I could swear by the most strict doctrinal statement that you could lay out to me. Jim, I'm a Bible-believing, believers Baptist, literalist, cessationist, dispensationalist, premillennial, pre-tribulational, Protestant, Calvinist. Well, goody for you. And I asked you, what does your orthodoxy gain you? In the end, it gains you absolutely nothing. The demons are very orthodox in their beliefs. They believe and they know the truth. They know what the truth is. And they tremble before it. But they're not saved. Now here's the thing. Out of all the things that I just named for you, heredity, morality, orthodoxy, out of all of those, none of them are inherently wrong. None of them are inherently sinful or wicked in and of themselves. All of them are blessing. It is a blessing to be born to Christian parents who bring you under the influence of Christian things and to be raised in a Christian home. Take that from somebody who didn't have that blessing. It is a blessing to be guided in morality your whole life so that you don't make tragic decisions that affect you later on in life. That is a blessing. It is a blessing to memorize Scripture. It is a blessing to never be drunk. It is a blessing to never have gone through a divorce. It is a blessing to be a very moral person. It is a blessing to have never rebelled from your parents and be by the providence and the sovereignty of God brought under the influence of a good church. All of those things are blessings. It is a blessing and a good thing to be sound in doctrine. I'm not railing against sound doctrine. But you know what is not a blessing? What is not a blessing is when all of those blessings and advantages, you take them and you put them in your assets column and you think, these things gain me favor before God. Once you do that, all of those blessings become nothing more than the pavement on your road to eternal damnation. That is why the Apostle Paul says, everything that was gained to me, I erased it and counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. I needed to gain Christ. So all of my morality and my heredity and my orthodoxy, all of it I cast it aside so that I could have Christ and Christ alone. That's why the Apostle Paul then says, I have counted these things as loss. In the perfect tense. I have counted is in the perfect tense, indicating it's something that happened a long time ago, 30 years ago by Paul's, at the time Paul writes this, something that had happened which still had a continuing effect. In other words, I counted these things as lost, and that is continually my mindset. He didn't change them to the lost column and then try and go back and grab them one by one and say, okay, now that I'm a Christian, now I can go back and take back circumcision and take back law-keeping and take back the Sabbath and take back my Phariseeism. He didn't do that. He said, all of those things I transferred to my debt column, my liability column, and today I still consider those things as lost to me. 
And he goes on to say, I've suffered the loss of all things so that I could have Christ. He considered them as one large liability. Look at the verse. Look at verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. And loss is singular, by the way. This is kind of an interesting contrast because when he says gains, it's plural. As if there were many of them. I have this and this and this in the list. But when he says, I make, I consider them or I count them all as a loss, it is singular. All of those things which before he viewed as individual, singular accomplishments. I have all of this list of things. But when they go to the loss column, it's just one big black mark as far as Paul is concerned. Kind of like the little child. You have a chart up on the wall and you put the little stars here and you got your star for this and a star for that and your star for this and you give them little stars all the way across and they begin to think, oh, look at all my little individual accomplishments. All my little stars on my chart. This is phenomenal. It's going from seeing all of the stars on the chart to, wa- to wadding up the whole chart and throwing it in the trash. That's the mentality. All of it is one colossal loss. What, what would cause somebody to do that? What would cause somebody to do that is for the sake of owning Christ. You cannot have both. Do you understand this? You cannot have both. You cannot hold on to Christ with one hand and all of your achievements and accomplishments and advantages that you think gain you favor with the other hand. You can't have both. You have to trade one for the other. You have to come to the point of giving up all things that are gained to you, everything in your mind that thinks that you think gives you righteousness in the sight of God. Give all of that up just so that I could have Christ, because you can't have both. But I did this, Paul says, so that I could have Christ, because there came a point when Paul said to himself, in all my winning, I'm losing. Right? Every advantage that I put in my assets column, every star I put on my chart takes me further and further from true righteousness. Every advantage that I list in my assets column is taking me further and further from being righteous in the sight of God and having that which is truly valuable. In all his gaining, he was losing. And the more he gained, the more he lost. I can't help, and maybe you've already noticed it, I can't help seeing here in Paul's words an allusion to some things that Jesus said in Mark 8.36. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The word gains there is the same word that Paul uses. The word lose or forfeits his own soul is the same word that Paul uses for loss. And although Jesus was applying that to physical possessions, it certainly the principle applies here to Paul. What does it gain you? What does it profit you? What are your assets if you gain all of these assets, but in the end you lose your own soul? What gain is that to you? Now, did Paul have the, did, had Paul gained the world? Yeah, he certainly had. He was at the zenith of anything anybody could have wanted. When it came to the law, he was a Pharisee. That was the, that was the zenith of his ambition, the zenith of his career. He had, as it were, the world by the tail. He had reputation, he had Respect from people, he had admiration, he had the law, he had all of the blessings. Anything any Jew, anybody in that age could have ever wanted, the Apostle Paul had. He had the whole world morally, heredity-wise, and orthodoxy-wise. He had it all by the tail. But then he came to realize, in all of my gaining, I'm going to lose that which is truly valuable, which is my own soul. And the same is true for you. 
If you trust in your own righteousness or your list of things that you think gain you righteousness in the sight of God, you will lose Christ. And I don't care how often you sing to His name, how often you read His Word, how often you come here to worship and hear the preaching of the Word. I don't care how often you do that or how sincere you are. If you try and hold on to things that you have to gain you righteousness, you will lose Christ because you can't have both. You're trusting in the wrong thing. Now, so far up till now, I've been just applying this to salvation and our righteousness and our standing before God. This whole idea of putting no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. The flesh is my heredity, my morality, my orthodoxy, anything that I could put my confidence in which would distract from me putting my confidence in Christ. All of that would be considered the flesh. But this issue of putting no confidence in the flesh... And this issue of trusting in Christ and Christ alone and counting all of my gains as losses applies not just to salvation, but further, and I want to apply this to two other areas, our sanctification, that is our day-to-day walk with Christ, and also my ultimate security in Christ. It applies to my day-to-day walk with Christ and ultimately to my security with Christ. Let's just talk for a moment, this can be more than a moment, about my sanctification, my day-to-day walk with Christ. There are Christians, you don't have to go very far to find them. I hope that there are none here. But there are Christians who look at outward measures of the flesh, outward advantages, outward advancements, as measures of somebody's spirituality. And they judge their brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they are as righteous or more righteous or less righteous, depending on some outward show of righteousness, some outward manifestation, some fleshly measure. Now, I, I know whereof I speak, because after I became a Christian, I spent, and after I should say after I started to walk with God, I spent almost two years with this type of mentality. And it is the mentality that judged everybody else, every other Christian, by my own little list of do's and don'ts, my own little standards of righteousness that I had in my mind. If you're a Christian... This is how you're going to act. This is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to dress. This is where you're going to go. These are the things that you won't do. And I had my little list. When I went to Bible college, this is after I got saved. In in my opinion, I came this close to apostatizing. This close to apostatizing. When I went to Bible college, I had that mentality. I was a pseudo-righteous, a falsely righteous pharisaical, hypocritical, critical, bitter, analytical, legalistic jerk. And you would have hated to know me. You would have hated to know me. Now, some of you say, Jim, I think you're a jerk now. Well, you would have really, you would have really thought I was a jerk back then. And I, my best friends at Bible college nicknamed me, in Christian love, of course, Jim the Pharisee. My best friends called me that. Because that's what, that's the way I was. And I had all of my, my lists of things that you had to do to measure up to my standard of righteousness. And if you didn't measure up, I would call you a hypocrite. I'd call you a liberal. I would call you an inconsistent Christian, an unrighteous individual, unholy. I had a whole list of words that I would use to describe you. So what I did this last week is I went back to my own little list and I made a little list. And I thought, well, I'll share with you some of these things and see if I can come up with a few things that maybe, um, 
few sacred cows you have, and I could tip them over this morning too, since I'm going through my own little list. So let me give you a list of the ways that Christians judge other Christians in the flesh and ways in which we place our confidence for our own righteousness. As if having believed in Christ, this was my mentality, as if having believed in Christ, I was then going to perfect His righteousness. I was then going to enhance His righteousness and make myself righteous in the sight of God by the things that I did do or by the things that I abstained from doing. So let me give you the list. Some Christians judge other Christians depending on determined by whether or not they wear jewelry. Certainly no godly woman would wear earrings. And certainly no godly woman would wear a necklace. And certainly no godly woman would ever cut her hair shorter than the middle of her back and not wear a doily on her head. And certainly no godly woman would ever wear makeup because that would be vain. Right? And you would never do your hair really nice because that would be vain. And certainly no godly woman would ever go anywhere in public or private without wearing a dress. It doesn't matter whether your wife goes to church or goes to the store or goes to the school or goes is at home or rototilling the garden or shoveling the snow off your roof or changing the oil in your skitter. She has to have a dress on because all godly women wear dresses. And that's what you need to have. And as far as men go, no godly man shaves. No, in the Old Testament, they all had beards. But then there's the other group that says, hey, godly men don't wear beards. They're all clean shaven because if you wear a beard, you must be hiding something. So if you have a beard on your face, you can't possibly be righteous. No godly man would ever walk around uncleanly shaven or with long hair or with messed up hair. Have I hit on your little thing yet? If I haven't, I'm not quite done. No godly person would ever wear a tattoo or get a tattoo. Christians don't get tattoos because that's so worldly. Really? Believe that? You willing to die for that? Willing to go to the wall for that? When you walk in and you see somebody with tattoos on their arms or tattoos on their shoulders or tattoos on their neck, what do you think? What kind of judgment do you make in your mind about that individual? That he's unrighteous, more righteous, less righteous than you? We judge one another based upon our possessions. Oh, no godly person would ever live in a house that nice. No godly person would ever live in a double wide like that. No godly person would ever drive a car like that. No godly person would ever own a car as nice as that. We have all of our possessions that we judge each other by. How about your hobbies and your entertainment? I know Christians don't watch sports on the Lord's Day. No, that's a, that's a defamation of the Lord's Day. Christians don't go to bowling alleys. Oh, you went to the theater? You watched a movie? No Christian would ever be caught dead in a theater. No true Christian, no true righteous Christian would ever really watch a TV. Jim, we don't have a TV in our house, and my kids have never seen a moving image on a screen. And then you look at somebody else who has and does, and you think to yourself, oh, they're worldly Christians. They're polluted. They're turning their kids over to the Philistines for an hour a day to be trained through the television screen. Or how about your music? No, we don't go to a church that doesn't sing all hymns or have a nice mixture of hymns and choruses. And any church that has more than three instruments for worship must be sinful and unrighteous. And I never listen to any secular music, and I never listen to any music with a beat. And anybody who does listen to a music with a beat, or with a set of drums, or with more than three instruments, is obviously sinning, obviously wrong. Because we've all been given the illustration, you remember, that if you put a plant in a room with classical music, and you play it, the plant will flourish. And if you put a plant in the room with rock music, the plant will wither and die. Remember that? You've been to a Bill Gothard seminar, and you've heard that illustration? 
You know what? If you put your Bible out on the grass and leave it there for a couple weeks, it'll kill all the grass underneath of it too. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is bad. So I don't listen to secular music. And then when I first got saved, I used to walk into the mall and almost plug my ears because if I heard a song with a beat to it, with an electric guitar to it, or if I was in the elevator and I heard that, or a car driving by played music with a beat, I was going to be attacked by demons. I heard a man say at a men's Bible study one time that the electric guitar would be the worship instrument of the Antichrist during the tribulation. And so I thought that I would be attacked by demons. And I thought that Satan would have a foothold in my life if I had a Beach Boys album. So I tossed out my Beach Boys album. Now I regret it. I threw away 20 bucks. I like the Beach Boys. And as if Satan is going to get a foothold in my life because I listened to that song, When I grow up to be a man. Remember that? That was a train wreck, wasn't it? (laughs) Say, man, Jim, if I had a Beach Boys album that sounded like that, I'd throw it away too. (laughs) How about your hobbies and your entertainment? Oh, oh, Christians don't watch that type of stuff. And I'm not talking about grossly immoral stuff. I'm talking about stuff where we have the freedom to disagree. Okay, you don't like boxing. All right, fine. I do. You don't like football. Fine. I don't like golf. And you want to do it on the Lord's Day, I don't care. Have I touched your thing yet? Not quite done. We judge churches by the same sort of fleshly standards. Oh, they must be a righteous church because they're a small church. So they must be the remnant. They must be pure because there's only 15 of them there. And they meet in this massively oversized building. So they must be righteous because they're a very small church. Other people view churches and they say they must be God. They must be doing something right because they're a big church. We belong to a big church, therefore we're righteous. We belong to a small church, therefore we're righteous. We go to a church where the pastor doesn't wear a suit. And we're more righteous than you traditional stuffy neck people. Well, we go to a church where the pastor does wear a suit. I actually know a woman, and I met her, who said to my friend Brian Atmore when he first showed up to pastor the church in Creston, he showed up after his first or second Sunday there, and she came up to him and she said, I can tell that you are a righteous and holy pastor because you wear a white shirt underneath of your suit and not one of those colored shirts like a lot of the young preachers wear. Like the one I'm wearing. Those are the standards that we use to judge each other by. Well, our church doesn't have this instrument, and we don't sing this song, and we don't do that. And we're righteous because we have this, and we have this ministry, and we're a family-centered church, and you're not a family-centered church, and we read the King James Bible, and you don't. There must be something wrong with you people that don't read the King James Bible. I, I, I believe that. First three Bibles I owned were all King James. King James, King James, King James. Why? Because I believe that only liberals read NIVs and NASBs and any other translation. Even the New King James was a liberal Bible translation. And if you read the New King James, you were a liberal. And you can only be a liberal if you read any other Bible translation. Let's talk about circumcision. Since that's the, that's the subject of our passage here in Philippians chapter 3, how about circumcision? You ever run into somebody who promoted circumcision as required for Christians? Yeah, I have. His name is Bill Gothard. Now, I say that some of you kind of crick your head and look at me like a dog just heard a high-pitched squeal, and you're wondering, who's that? If you've been a Christian only a short enough period of time that you have never had the misfortune of crossing paths with Bill Gothard, consider yourself doubly blessed. Because if verse 2 of this passage does not describe him as an evil dog, an evil worker, and a mutilator of the flesh, then there are no people alive today that verse 2 describes, if it does not describe him. 
his misuse and abuse of the Old Testament scriptures, the ceremonial law and the Levitical law to tell Christians how to live, how to work, how to eat, how to cook, how to dress, what foods to eat, when to engage in marital intimacy, how to be circumcised and that every Christian should be circumcised, and how to date and how to do a thousand other things. That type of legalism would make the Judaizers of Paul's day green with envy. How do you come across? How are you able to do that? He's an evil dog. He's a modern-day mutilator who says that circumcision is required for Christians. And I, yeah, I used to have the big red book with all the charts and graphs that showed you how righteous other people would be, depending on how Gothard-like they were. Now, for the two of you who still might not be mad at me, I got a couple more. How about family size? You ever judge somebody based upon the size of their family? Oh, they're a big family. They got lots of kids. They must be godly. And we don't do any kind of family planning or anything. We just leave that all in the Lord's hands. And if that means two kids, then praise the Lord. If that means 22 kids, then praise the Lord. And the more kids you have, the more godly you must be. And we went to that church because they're filled with young families. And every family there has got 10 kids or more. And the pastor there, he's got 15 kids. Now his wife looks like she was drugged behind a bus all the way to church. She walks around looking like she's incoherent, can't speak in complete sentences, hasn't slept in a week, hardly is able to put two coherent thoughts together. She's got four kids in diapers, six that are still nursing, and she's eight and a half months pregnant. They must be a godly couple. You say, do you really know people that do that? Yes, I know people who do that. And I've had discussions with people who do that. And I've been around whole churches of people filled with people who think that that is the measure of one's spirituality. And they put all of their confidence in those fleshly measures. Well, you must be godly if that, and if you don't have children, ho. Oh, Something must be wrong with you. You're under the curse of God. You're ungodly. Or if you have one kid, something's wrong with you. Baloney. There's nothing wrong with you. How about your homeschool philosophy? Oh, you send your kids to public school? You send your kids to public school? Don't you know that as a church we really promote homeschooling? And for some people, it doesn't stop with where they send their kids, public or private school. For some people, you got to homeschool your kids according to their curriculum. Oh, you don't use the Bob Jones stuff? Or you don't use the Bill Gothard stuff? Or you don't use such and such stuff? Is that what you think is a measure of godliness? Whether somebody homeschools their kids or not? You meet somebody who doesn't send their kids to homeschool their kids and sends their kids to a private school or a public school. Do you look down upon them and think that they must not be as righteous as you? Must not be as godly as you? How about where you shop? We don't go to that restaurant because that's owned by a Mormon. We don't go there because they serve alcohol. We don't go there because he's an atheist. They have a gay waiter there, so we don't go to that restaurant. We don't. Oh, you go to restaurants that serve alcohol? What? You sit down and have a cup of wine with your steak? You must not be as godly as me. You must not be as righteous as me. Now look, in everything I have described up here, you want to wear plaid and boots and wear a beard and read the King James and not listen to secular music and not listen to contemporary music and you want to have a big family and you want to wake your wife wear a dress or your wife wants to wear a dress or you want to cut your hair a certain way and you want to do all of these things because that's you and that's how you want to do it, fine, spanky. I don't have any problems with that. My problem comes when you all of a sudden think that makes you righteous. It doesn't. And nothing I have described 
has anything to do with your righteous standing in the sight of God. Because listen, if you get nothing else, get this. There is nothing that I have ever done and nothing that I will ever do that will ever contribute one iota to my righteousness in the sight of God. Nothing I have ever done and nothing I could ever do could ever change the righteousness that I have in the sight of God. Because it's not my righteousness. It's His righteousness. And I can't affect it. I can't pollute it. I can't change it. I can't enhance it. I can't take away from it. I can't do anything to it. It's not mine. I didn't get it by anything that I have done. And I'm not going to enhance it through anything that I have done. So that I am today, listen, just as righteous as the day I trusted Christ. Just as righteous. And I am just as righteous in the sight of God today, this moment, in this sinful flesh. I am just as righteous in His sight as I will be a million years into eternity. After a million years of praising Him, I'm just as righteous today as I will be then. Nothing I can do, nothing I will do changes that. Nothing I have ever done or ever could do can ever enhance His righteousness. It's mine on the basis of faith. We're going to talk about that a lot more when we get to verse 9. We haven't even got past verse 7 yet. But friends, this, this concept of not trusting in my flesh for salvation or for sanctification, and let me give you one more, for my ultimate security before God. For my ultimate security before God. I said a couple weeks ago that I regard the doctrine that one can lose their salvation as one of the most hideous teachings that's ever crept into the church. I'm not pulling that back from you this morning. I still believe that. And I'll tell you why I believe it. I believe it because it, at minimum, implies that my ultimate salvation rests upon something that I have done, will do, or am continuing to do. That's anathema to me. My ultimate salvation rests on no one and nothing else but Jesus Christ and His obedience to the Father. That's it. And there is... If I perish, it's because Christ has failed. And so any teaching, any doctrine, any legalism that gives me any credit for my salvation or makes the fulfillment of my salvation or my sanctification or anything else depend upon me in any way is anathema. Any legalistic teaching which measures righteousness and spirituality from outward fleshly measures, it's anathema. Any teaching that suggests that I will ultimately be saved because I persevered and I did something that gained me or earned me that ultimate salvation is anathema. It is Christ... It is Christ, and it is Christ alone, and absolutely nothing else but Him and Him alone. And if I could just do one thing this morning, it would be to kick out from underneath of you every single fleshly prop that you think props up your own righteousness in the sight of God, and every single fleshly prop that you think measures your own righteousness before God or enhances your standing before God, and every fleshly prop that you think is going to ultimately carry you through to the end. All gone. It's Christ and Christ alone. George Whitfield, great preacher of the 1700s, very last sermon that he preached, he had to be carried to the pulpit to preach. He started off kind of slow. He was the preacher who was, who along with Jonathan Edwards was largely responsible for the great awakening in the 1700s. He had to be carried into the pulpit, started off kind of slow. In the middle of the sermon, he was imploring and begging with his hearers. He died within a week after preaching. 
begging with his hearers to trust Christ and to turn to Christ and to trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And toward the end of his sermon, George Whitfield said this, Works? Works? A man go to heaven by works? I would sooner try to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. You trusting in your own righteousness to save you? You trusting in works to save you? You trusting in works to make you sanctified and enhance your righteousness? Are you trusting in works to finally land you in the kingdom of God? Friends, listen. You might as well try and climb to the moon on a rope of sand. It can do nothing for you. The only thing we can do, all my righteousness, all my hope and all my plea, is Christ and Christ alone. And every other fleshly prop and every other fleshly measure of my own righteousness has to be taken away from me and destroyed and cast away permanently. And it is only in recognizing how wretched of a sinner and unable I am that I am able to get Christ. Everything that is gained to me, you have to be able to say this, everything that is gained, I count as loss so that I could have Christ. Everything I think earns me righteousness, one big deficit in order that I could gain Christ. And friends, when you trade that, that's a bargain. That's a bargain. Nothing you could ever do, none of your own righteousness could ever compare to His perfect righteousness. And anything that threatens the gracious, the good, and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is nothing but confidence in the flesh. And as Paul says, we place no confidence in the flesh. Not for our salvation, not for our sanctification, and not for our security in our faith. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have, that you have sent your son to die on a cross to perfectly pay the price for our sin and that in trusting you, we are made righteous. We are declared righteous on the basis of faith. Thank you that even today, even though we don't feel it, even though we don't think it, even though we don't always recognize it and understand it to be true, that we who have trusted in Christ for salvation are clothed in his perfect righteousness. And thus we are accepted before you on the basis of faith and faith alone. No earthly accomplishments, no fleshly measures of our own righteousness and holiness. And God, forgive us for trusting in anything but Christ, anything but Him for salvation, anything but Him for a measure of our righteousness, and anything but Him for ultimate security. And may the cry of our heart be Christ and Christ alone, now and forever. We do ask this in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.